So the last time we were in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7, we, we looked at King David and how he had experienced the moment of rest after all the struggle that he had went through in the wilderness season, running from Saul, running for his life for many years, just trying to make it. Okay, and so finally he's, he's, he came to this place where he ex- is experiencing the promises of God. He's experiencing what God said would happen to him, that he would indeed be the king of Israel. And that he would be a king, uh, as it said, a man after God's own heart, that he would lead in a way that would honor God. That he would lead in a way that he would represent God well. And so anyways, God had brought him to this place of rest. And remember, as we looked at last time, David had some, some leisure. He had some space. The Lord given him rest from his enemies. And he thought, I want to do something for God. I want to build God a house. All right, and so he communicated that to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan said, go for it, and then Nathan heard back from the Lord, and then he said, no, you're not going to build God a house. Uh, God, God uh, s- says, I'm going to do something for you, David. And, and, and when we looked at that, I, I highlighted the importance of first, uh, for us recognizing first what God has done for us. Yes, it's important for us to be doers of God's word, to take action to be obedient to what God says, to be devoted followers of and worshipers of the one true God. But one of the things that's really important that we gotta get is we need to recognize the amazing grace that God has shown us, the victory that God has brought us, the, the, the blessings that God has brought us. And, and, and so Nathan, the prophet, highlighted that in his message to David. And David responded with humble gratitude and worship of God for his greatness and his grace shown towards him. Now here in chapter 8 we see David experiencing some victory as the king in chapter 9 we see David ex- expressing the kindness of God to another. I have titled this message today The Victory and the Kindness of the King. The victory and the kindness of the king. And we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8 is a chapter that involves war. Okay, And if you missed our, um, our coverage of 1 Samuel chapter 15, I believe, we talked about some of the, the complexities and the challenges of trying to make sense of war in the Bible and God seemingly um, um, either uh, um, um, issuing war or um, or being in that in some way, and so we've talked about that. So I'm not going to do much on explaining that, but I'm going to highlight a few things in chapter eight, and then we're going to look at chapter nine together. Starting in verse one, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took. Methagehmah out of the hand of the Philistines and he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line making them lie down on the ground two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute David also defeated Hadadazer the son of Rehab the king of Zobah and he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. 
And David took with him 17,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. David handstrung all the, the, the chariot horses. And he left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Assyrians of Damascus came to help Hadazer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the, Syrians, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Bata of Berothai, cities of Hadazar, king of David, took much, very much bronze. When To, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadazar, To sent his son Jerom to king of David to ask about his health and bless him because he had fought against Hadazar and defeated him. For Hadazar had often been at war with To, and Jerome, or Jerome uh, brought him articles of silver and gold and bronze. And these also King David dedicated to the Lord, with the silver and the gold, and he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Malachite, from the spoil of Hadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zoah. And David made a name for himself, and he went and returned from striking down, and when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, then he put, a, then he put garrisons in Edom, Throughout Edom, he put garrisons, and through and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all the people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, Zeruiah sorry, pardon me, for, I am butchering these names here was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abitahar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, over the Cherites and the Pelotites and David's sons were priests. Pardon me. Thank you so much. I think we're going to start doing uh, public reading from, from a member in the, in the congregation after this. This is one of the worst. I did listen to it to try to prepare for this, but that didn't translate. Um, and so here's our big idea. Pardon all the names. I could have skipped them, but names are important in the Bible because pe people are important in the Bible, and God knows each person by their name, even if you can't pronounce it. Your name matters. Their name matters. People matter to God. Here's our big idea, though. God enabled David to be a king who effectively led Israel through war and administrative challenges. He led with justice, equity, and kindness, and his example points us to a greater king. His example points us to a greater king. We're also going to look at chapter 9, which is about 13 verses or so. But here's our first point, simply this, that David's victories, David's victories as a warrior king were given to him by God. 
You see, in this chapter, we see David defeating his enemies, and there's a list of them here where David is conquering as a warrior and a king, and he's fighting battles for Israel to secure the borders for Israel. Okay, now this is different in the past because in the past we often saw David on the defensive. Here we see David on the offensive. We see him taking action, fighting against Israel's enemies. And and it's, it's significant the amount of enemies that he defeated under his reign. But here, here's the important thing. Here's two important statements that stick out to me as I'm reading through this is the statement that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You see, David was a warrior. David had seen a lot of bloodshed in his day. David had faced Goliath. David had faced many enemies in the past. He had seen many victories. He was skilled. He said in Psalm 144 that the Lord trains his hand for war. This is what he said in Psalm 144 verse 1. But here, the, the, the author makes a theological statement. He makes a theological statement. He is doing theological storytelling. And within the story, he's not merely reporting the facts of what happened. He's dropping these theological statements, which point us to a consistent theme throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, namely the providence of God. And we've talked a good deal about that about God working through people and circumstances at different times and situations to bring about his plans and his purposes for his glory. And so here, it's not merely that David was a a skilled warrior or a good king warrior leader. It's the fact that God gave David victory to him wherever he went. God was with David. And God had a plan for David and for the nation of Israel. He had a plan to make his covenant-keeping promises uh, known. God's covenant um, character, covenant, his faithful character and his steadfast love known through this small people group, Israel. Okay, uh, One theologian says this, that the rise of David is represented not, not as having been a piece of chance, good fortune or why or a wise piece of policy but a miraculous event disposed by a higher hand in this way the material is brought into the larger context of all scripture and becomes an episode in the history of God's guidance we see God's providence here behind this later on Solomon, David's son, would write in Proverbs that the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. The the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Here in chapter 8, we see God giving David victory. So God gets the credit for any security, stability, and peace, and blessing that David and the people of Israel were experiencing in this time. David had experienced Israel being united while they were, they were divided for a time after King Saul passed away. It was Saul's house versus David's house. And, and there, there had, David had been brought into this place of leadership where Israel was united and they were experiencing victory and they were experiencing rest from their enemies. 
And it was the Lord who gave them this. Now, also notice this, because we could, we could spend more time talking about the war, and actually, war in Israel is on our minds right now, right? And I hope, I hope you've been praying for those involved and praying for this situation that God would intervene and that lives would be spared and, and that, um, that God would show up in this dark situation. As Christians, we should lament over the death and the loss of life of anyone, all right? Jews and Palestinians. We should grieve over those who've lost their life in war or, or through acts of violence because they are made in the image of God, right? And we, so we started uh, this book off talking about that, how David led with lament when Saul uh, and Jonathan died. Now, what we also see here, though, is we see that David led effectively with justice and equity by effective administration. See, it wasn't just the war where David led, and, and most of us think of David as a, as a warrior king. We think of that aspect of his leadership. But there's another really important aspect of leadership that he as a national leader had to function in. And he had to delegate and, and lead through effective administration. And it says in, in verse 15 that David reigned over all of Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now, this is an important statement, and I appreciate the author of 2 Samuel bringing these two together here. We have the, the war aspect, but the administration aspect. And throughout history, there have been leaders who only focus on the war aspect and who build up their stockpile of nuclear missiles while their people are not getting proper food that they need and care that they need. That's going on right now in the world today where there's an overemphasis on military might and a lack of emphasis by many leaders on administration and justice and equity amongst the people, them getting what they need. David was the leader who didn't neglect that. Uh, who, who in the, according to verse 15, he administered justice and equity to all his people. And how did he do it? Did he try to do it all himself? Well, the, the text tells us in verse 16 through 18, he set up other leaders who would help administrate, who would carry out the, 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 the very, he put Joab over the army. Jehoshaphat was a recorder. Zadok and uh, Ahimelech were priests and Sariah was secretary and Beniah was, was over the, the Cher Cheriites and the Peleites and David's sons were priests. And so David had an administration. David had other leaders who were helping take care of the needs within the nation. A uh, commentary that I've used in, in First and Second Samuel that I highly appreciate uh, and recommend it to you is Eugene Peterson's work on First and Second Samuel. And, and what he says about this is, is this. He says, David is as attentive to waging peace as to waging war. The security that resulted from military victories is put to use, put to the use of justice. But although these words are embedded in Israel's prayers, the Psalms, and social conscience, the prophets, this kind of work never gets as much attention as war. He says, administration is not as exciting as battle, but it is more important and the effects are more enduring. 
The flash of swords in battle catches most of the headlines, but the headlines do not last. The tedious decision-making that takes place in meetings is largely unremarked, but the decisions enter the daily routines of people's lives and affect the ways we love and care for our neighbors. How many administrators do we have in here? Those who work in administ- or administrative role, a couple, all right, in your job, or, or gifting even, if, you're, if that's just how you're, you're wired. Um, you're a good planner, you're, you're good at organizing, planning, um, all right? You can raise your hand, you don't have to be ashamed. I just want to honor you, that's all. Because I appreciate those who are good at that and those who are gifted in that because that's not my, my greatest strength. And so I want to surround myself by other people who do that well and work together as a team so that the needs here within this church are effectively met and so that the needs in this community are effectively met. And so if that's your wiring, that's your gifting, that's your passion, let's talk. Let's talk about how we can get you connected here at City Church and use that gift for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so we see David leading both, not only in war, but in administration and delegating the proper people to take care of the needs of of Israel. Now, let's turn to a specific story of kindness in chapter 9. So David's experiencing this victory. He's experiencing this space, this breather, if you will, of not having to be on the run. And, and, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, he said, And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul? What do you think is going to come next? Is there anyone else, anyone else left in the house of Saul? Remember, Saul's house was at enmity with David's house. What does he say? I mean, typically this might read with many kings throughout history. It might read, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul so that we might get him? That's not how it goes. That's not how the story goes down. It's different here. Now, this is important. I hope this, is a, this story is a refresher for us of an act of kindness, the kindness of God through in and through David. David said, is there anyone still, is there, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they, called him, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amil at Lodabar. And, the king, and, and then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness 
For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then, king, the, then the king called Ziba, Saul's, servants, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce your master's grandson that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived at Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Now, who is this guy, Mephibosheth? He has already been mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 4 as one of Jonathan's sons. And here's, here's a little bit of the story of how he became crippled in his feet. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and she fled. And as she fled in her haste, he, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So that's his story. And Mephibosheth, his dad passed away. His grandfather passed away. There was turmoil in the kingdom. He lived his life disabled, probably in obscurity. All right? And then at one point... Saul's enemy, David, who Saul considered as an enemy, takes power. And he gets a call. He gets a call. Somebody just got a call. <laughs> he gets a call to come to the king. Now just think if you were if you were Mephibosheth. Okay? I had to work on his name, by the way. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Think if you were Mephibosheth, if that was you, how would you feel in that moment? Because typically, when kings would take over power in the ancient world, they would look for enemies that need to be taken out. Any, any posing threat to their reign, to their kingdom, they planned to just take them out. But David's approach was different here. There's a reason why his approach was different. There's a couple of reasons why I think his approach was different. So Mephibosheth comes to David. There's this moment of, of this sobering moment for, for him. And David tells him in that moment, do not fear. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father. Mephibosheth had good reason to fear. He had a reasonable reason to fear, to be afraid for his very life that he's being called to the king's courts because the king's going to take him out. 
that wasn't the case. And so he gets these comforting words from the king, from, from the one who has the highest authority and the highest power in the land. Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness. Think of the relief he must have felt in that moment. Or at least following. Now, I, I don't know if he believed him right away, if he just had his guards up. He's like, is he, just, is he, is he for real? What's, what's his motive? Why is he doing this? Why is he saying this? He says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. See, why did David show him kindness? Because of John, David and Jonathan had this close relationship. They were best friends. They were good friends. There was a healthy, godly relationship. They both loved the Lord and they were good friends. And at one point in the relationship, they made a commitment to one another, right? They didn't know uh, exactly how everything was going to play out. And, and, and Jonathan and David made a commitment to one another. Do, jo, David made a commitment to Jonathan to continue to show kindness to his house. So one of the reasons why David showed kindness to Mephibosheth is, first of all, his covenant that he made with Jonathan, David's uh, Mephibosheth's father. Back in chapter 20 of, of, of uh, 1 Samuel, this is the interaction between David and Jonathan. He said, if, I'm, if I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemy. And Jonathan made, a made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So, so David was going to keep his word. David, while he could have, while maybe there was probably nobody to really uh, see whether, what, what David would do here. Nobody to, to observe what's David going to do in this situation. I mean, who, who knew about this commitment? Who knew? But yet David knew. And before God, David made a commitment and he was following through on it. David was probably reflecting on the goodness of God in his own life. He's probably reflecting about, on how God had delivered him and brought him through many difficult things and had showed him hesed, steadfast love. Okay, this is a reoccurring theme in the Psalms. Okay, this is a reoccurring theme in the lives of the people of God throughout Scripture, throughout your story, even. It's the steadfast love of God or the kindness of God or the loyal love of God. It's hesed. It's a rich word packed with beauty and meaning. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, Lamentations tells us. And so David had experienced this and, and he made a commitment that he would give that steadfast love to Jonathan and his family. He also made a commitment to Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Saul said, swear to me therefore, after David spared Saul's life and, and Saul acknowledged his, acknowledged his wrong in seeking David's life, Saul said, swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me that, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul and then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
And so David was a man of commitment, a man of his word, a man who had experienced the steadfast love of God, his own self. He had experienced God's kindness towards him, God treating him better than he deserved. Notice verse three here, and here's, here's my last point. David showed kindness to Mephibosheth based on God's kindness to him. David had experienced it, okay? Notice what he said in verse three. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Notice that, take note of that, the hesed of God. You see, back in chapter seven, we see David basking in the steadfast love of God, the grace of God, the the greatness of God. And David was humbled. He had this humble gratitude to God for choosing him and calling him out of the sheepfold to, to, to lead Israel and God sparing his life and God bringing him into that place where he was seeing the promises come to pass in his life. And those who experience God's kindness, those who've received and accepted God's kindness, it is only fitting for us to give it out to others. You see, David had experienced that. And in that moment when when things were looking great in his kingdom, he had experienced victories in war. He had experienced success in administration and the people were being taken care of. David, instead of thinking about more expansion in that moment, he 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 was thinking, who can I show some kindness to? You see, David was a victorious and kind king. And I've titled this, The Victorious and Kind King. But his story points us to one who is greater than him, who's called the son of David, who is the truly victorious and kind king. You see, it was Yahweh, it was God who gave David victory over his enemies. It was Yahweh who showed David Hesed his steadfast love and and treated him better than he deserved. Because as we read David's story, we know that he's not perfect. We know that he is a sinner and he sins significantly. Actually, we're going to look at that pretty soon where he sins significantly. But David was continually met with the steadfast love of God, the kindness of God. And in this moment when he has power to take somebody's life as the king, to cut them off, somebody who's marginalized and overlooked, living in obscurity, David sees this person. He goes looking for this person to show the kindness of God to. Because that's what those who've experienced God's kindness do. We're blessed to be a blessing, right? And there's greater joy for us when we not only receive God's blessings in our lives, but we let them flow through us into the lives of others. We treat others better than we deserve. We've been treated better with grace by the king. And notice all the grace that David lavishes on Mephibosheth. I mean, he's welcome in as a son. I mean, can you imagine the last time he hurt anybody call him son? And he's welcomed in to to eat and, and to live in Jerusalem, not just live in Jerusalem and experience privileges and benefits there, but to eat at the king's table 
and be a part of his entourage and, and, and be able to interact with the king on a regular basis at the table. All the delicacies, all the richness of the king's table. And David, David was committed to having uh, land and, and privileges restored to him that belonged to Saul's house. He was meeting him with kindness, meeting him with grace. And this points us to our covenant-keeping God who is committed to showing us steadfast love. Eugene Peterson writes this about this, this hesed, this steadfast love. He calls it loyal love. Loyal love is not, is not a greeting card sentiment. It has the substance of the good earth beneath it and, and the regularity of three square meals a day to reinforce it. Loyal love is a way of life that works for the good of another and brings out the best in the other. Sees behind and beneath whatever society designates a person to be disabled, inconvenient, a rival, worthless, dysfunctional, and acts to affirm a God created identity. You see, we see the heart of God here towards the marginalized. You, we see the heart of God here towards you and me. Because you and me are like Mephibosheth. You see, we, we may even feel like that, like, like uh, John Newton did who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton, a former slave trader who came to Christ considered himself a wretch and he was amazed by the grace of God that brought salvation to him. He was amazed by it. Notice that Mephibosheth didn't, didn't like step in and he's like, man, it's about time you came here and gave me my, my, my privileges and restored these to me. His response was, was not one of entitlement in that moment. Okay? It was not one of entitlement in that moment. His response was one of humble gratitude much like King David's response back in, back in chapter 7. He calls himself a, a dead dog. Like, why, why would this happen to me? Why would you, why would you treat me like this? It's, it's, it's baffling. It's mind-blowing. It's perplexing to us to, to think the God of the universe loves and welcomes us when we have been his enemies. We've been a part of, of the enemies of God and opposed his ways and opposed his purposes rejected his authority in our lives. And we haven't earned, earned our place at the table. It's all grace. It's all grace that you, by grace, you and I have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, as, as somebody who was disabled in the ancient world, Mephibosheth probably experienced much shame. Some scholars even highlight that the second half of his name, Besheth, um, means shame. And what we see King David pointing us to King Jesus doing is taking somebody who was living in a life of shame or, or uh, underprivilege and lifting them up. And, and this is consistent with the life of Jesus, how he treated the marginalized right? How he turns, uh, he turns our shame and brings us out of shame into honor. 
how he brings us out of rejection and pain and brokenness into a place of health and wholeness and freedom and acceptance. By the grace of God, we haven't earned it. It's a free gift. And so we should be baffled by the love of God, amazed by the grace of God, floored by it, wrecked by it in the best sense, undone by the reality that the God of the universe has chosen us and has chosen to set his love upon us and invite us to the table and give us privileges, give us an inheritance that we didn't earn or pay for. We should be amazed by this and worship God for doing this. You see, David knew David knew that, that, that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he delighted in those characteristics of God. He worshiped God for those things. He repeated those things in his Psalms. Things, those re, that the glory of God that was, was revealed through Moses. That God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And David showed it to Mephibosheth. And we are like him. We are like Mephibosheth and receiving what we didn't earn. And so let me close with just a couple points of application here. First of all, remember that you have a powerful and kind king who has fought battles on your behalf and is committed to showing you kindness forever. We have a powerful and kind king who came into this world to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the, 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 the evil uh, powers that be and bring about rescue and salvation to his people. We have a king, a powerful and kind king who's invited us to the table And, and, um, and next, we should respond with humble gratitude towards Jesus for giving us what we don't deserve and be amazed by his grace. Here's another aspect, too, is that we should invite others to the king's table to experience the grace and the kindness that you and I have received. We can't be silent. That was the message last week. We can't be silent when we got this good news. We have this message to share, this wealth to share with others. We would be sinning, as the, the leper said last week, if we didn't tell this good news, right? God forbid that we should be silent about the good news that we've experienced, the good news that we have, the good news that this world needs for wholeness, for rescue, for freedom, for hope, for purpose. And seek to share, lastly, seek to share your time and your resources with the underprivileged and the marginalized. Jesus taught about the kingdom in a, in a parable of a banquet, great banquet that was going down. And he, he taught what his followers should be like, inviting others to this banquet. And he said this, and more than once he mentions um, the marginalized or the disabled here. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And you will be blessed because, you can, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection. 
You see, this is the heart of Jesus. Jesus rolled with people, hung with people who were marginalized, who were looked down upon, who experienced shame and dishonor in their culture. He healed those broken people, people who were sick with leprosy and sick with various diseases. He healed them. People who experienced shame and dishonor and obscurity because of their disability in the ancient world. You see, somebody like Mephibosheth experienced, would experience much, they, they were, it was count, it was, the thought was that they, they were being cursed by God and that they were being punished for something they did or their parents did to, to be crippled or disabled or to have some misfortune like that happen to you. It was a common belief in the, in, in the ancient world. Even in the, in the first century with Jesus' disciples, they, they revealed that, that, that thinking in, in, in John chapter 9. When they asked Jesus the question, who sinned? This blind man? Or was it his parents that caused him to be blind? They were thinking that in, in, in a way that didn't fit Jesus' box. Jesus, Jesus had, had another option. He said, no, neither. But that the glory of God might be revealed this day. And Jesus did something about that man's blindness and revealed the glory of God in that moment, revealing that he is the light of the world, as he said in the pre previous chapter of John. He is the savior of the world. He is the lamb of God who was slain. He is the king who has come to bring rescue to his people. And so let us be those who worship the king, submit to the king, marvel at the grace and the greatness of the king, and tell others the great things that he has done. Invite them to the table to be a part of the great feast. Amen? So Father, as... As we look at these things in your word, as we're reminded that you are in charge, that you are powerful, and you are gracious, and you have shown us steadfast love, may we be disarmed with the barriers that we've erected in our lives towards you or others. May our fears be diminished and pushed out knowing that you have, you have shown us kindness, knowing that you have paid the price for our sin. You've dealt with the hostility, the enmity between us in Christ. You've reconciled us to yourself. And you're a just king a righteous king and a kind king. Thank you. Thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. Let me close with John Newton's words in the second verse of Amazing Grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Perhaps there's somebody here, perhaps there's somebody here today who may believe and receive God's grace for the very first time in the history of their life. If you haven't taken that step,
to submitting the King Jesus as your Lord. It's the kind and powerful King. I want to encourage you to do so. Do so. Turn to him while there is time, while he is extending the invitation to you. He wants mercy and grace for you. He has a place at his table for you. And so if you want to take that step and, and, and you want somebody to pray with you, we would love to pray with you. We want to invite you uh, to respond to his leadership in your life. Jesus died for your sins. He went to the grave for you, was raised from the dead on the third day for you so that you can live forever with him. And so let's respond. We're going to respond in worship and perhaps there's someone who needs to respond in calling on the name of the Lord for rescue.